Welcome to the Catholic Information Center. My name is Rosemary Eldridge, and I'm delighted to be here with Lila Rose, founder and president of Live Action. Today, Lila is here to discuss her new book, Fighting for Life, Becoming a Force for Change in a Wounded World. For more details on Lila's career or to find ways to get involved in the pro-life movement, please read the video description below. I'd also like to take a quick second and encourage you to follow us on social media and to sign up for the CIC newsletter. This is the best way to stay up to date on all the intellectual and spiritual programming that the CIC has to offer. With that, I give the screen to Lila. Thank you, Rosemary. And it's awesome to get to be part of the CIC Catholic Information Center event. I am a huge CIC fan. I So I lived in DC for four and a half years. And during that time, I probably went to the CIC once a week. And it was like the oasis in the middle of the hustle and the bustle of DC. So I am a huge fan. And I was also telling Rosemary before the talk started that um, of all the places that I'm excited to see my book or know that my book has my first book exists in, um, knowing that it will be on the shelves of CIC is like my pride and joy. So thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to get to be addressing um, fellow fans and members of CIC. And I'm so excited to talk about fighting for life, becoming a force for change in a wounded world. Um, before I dive in, there's lots to talk about. I wanted to share a couple notes about my background. I know Rosemary just read an introduction, but some of you don't know, I am the founder and president of Live Action. So we are the global leader for education for the pro-life movement. We're um, reaching 15 million people weekly with the truth about abortion and human dignity. And that what that didn't happen overnight. Um, it was a lot of work, mistakes, struggles over the last 15 years to build that. Um, I started it as a teenager, but I wrote Fighting for Life, this book, because I realized that the cause for life and the many burning causes that are happening in our world today that are needing to be championed are are for all of us. You know, we each have a role to play. And so some of you might have heard of Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals. Uh, it was this kind of leftist handbook written um, decades ago. Hillary Clinton actually wrote her thesis on it in college, and she was a fan of Saul Alinsky and you could say mentored by him. And I thought we need a handbook for um, those who stand for moral truth <laughs> and for those who stand for family and children and marriage. And so that's what Fighting for Life is. Um, this is it. <laughs> the new book, um, Becoming a Force for Change in a Wounded World, is basically my best job at that handbook, um, using my stories, using my experiences uh, for anybody who feels that they should stand up for what's right and fight for the causes that matter. So what I'm going to do in the time we have today um, and thank you again for joining. It's probably lunchtime for some folks or just afternoon break, work break. Um, I'm going to be talking. There's a lot I could say about the book. It's um, 27 chapters. Fighting for Life is three parts. So part one is getting started. Part two is overcoming. And then part three is coming home. And I'm not going to be able to talk about all the chapters and things in the book, but I want to focus on three key points today. And then there'll be questions and answers. And by the way, at any point during my talk, if you have a question, we're going to spend, I think, 20 minutes on questions. So feel free to, um, I think it's in the chat box or in the comment section, Rosemary is tracking that, and I'd love to answer your questions. So the first thing I'm going to talk to you about is moral clarity and the power of moral clarity to transform culture. Um, I'm going to talk about taking action. And, you know, it's called live action because <laughs> for a reason, um, the importance of taking action and how we do that. And then I'm going to talk about personal wholeness and why that is so crucial in our fight for life or really any fight for any cause that matters. Um, and these are all drawing from chapters in the book and themes in the book. So um, I'm going to dive in. I will say one quick note. Uh, writing Fighting for Life was uh, cathartic in some ways, um, very difficult overall. So 
So I am um, a mom. I had my first son last year. My first child um, gave birth to him uh, right before the pandemic started. And labor and delivery was really hard. So for the ladies listening, if you're moms or you know moms um, or the men listening, um, we all have different birth stories. Anyways, I'm sharing this because writing a book was even harder than a very difficult labor and delivery. So big kudos to all the authors I've admired for decades. And I feel like it's a rite of passage that I have finally been able to pull it off. So that was definitely by God's grace, but I'm so excited to share it with you. So I'm going to talk about moral clarity, taking action and personal wholeness. And the goal here is um, how do we fight for the causes that matter most in this world? And what is our particular role as Catholics? What does that look like? So first of all, moral clarity. Um, I don't need to convince the folks listening that there's a lot of moral confusion in the world today. I first had an awareness of this as a young girl when I came across the injustice of abortion and other injustices that I was learning about. So I'll share a quick story here. I was raised in a family of eight kids. I'm one of eight. We were not raised Catholic. Um, we were raised evangelical. I actually would become Catholic in college. But when I was growing up, my parents were very pro-life. I mean, that was obvious, eight kids. And we were taught life is good and a blessing and to love God and others. And when I first found out about, about abortion, I was deeply heartbroken because I actually saw um, I was reading this book and I was you know, studying and I was I saw in this uh, book that I found of an actual insert with photographs and there were actually photographs of abortion victims. So you could see in the first trimester, which is when most abortions happen today, you could see, I could see a child with this beautiful newly formed arms and legs, a newly formed little face um, who had been torn apart by a powerful first trimester suction abortion, which is the most prevalent abortion in America. Uh, it's 30 to 50 times more powerful than a a household vacuum. So it's a suction machine that um, empties the uterus, as Planned Parenthood would say, that's how they phrase it, but it's really tearing apart this developing human life, this child. And looking at this image, I was just heartbroken. And I knew I knew immediately this is wrong. You know, you, you don't do this to a human being. This is wrong to do this to a child. So I had this um, immediate moral clarity as a kid learning about abortion. And I think that's important. You know, there's certain instincts we have. And of course, we can deform our consciences. So our conscience can become um, misled. But a lot of the natural instincts we may have, especially at a young age of right from wrong, there's a natural sense of justice that we've been given that we possess as human beings. And that's because God's law, moral law is written on our hearts. Our human nature is predisposed to want to understand the truth. No human being wants to be lied to. And so we're predisposed to want to know the truth of right and wrong. And we're predisposed because we're made in God's image and because of our human nature to know, to want to know right and wrong and to even have a sense for right and wrong, even if we haven't been specifically educated on it yet. And so why is moral clarity so important? A whole society can become obsessed with the wrong cause and can be perpetuated, perpetuating a great injustice without moral clarity. So if moral relativism reigns, if people say, I decide morality, there's no absolute arbiter of morality, there's no absolute right from wrong, evil doesn't exist, right? There's just, you know, how we feel and what we do. And, um, you know, there's different people decide what they think is best, then we can find ourselves as a whole society, as a culture, consumed in unhealthy and ultimately immoral behavior that is harming ourselves and others. And so when I found out about abortion, you know, I discovered at the time there are 3,000 abortions in America a day. I was also learning about a lot of other causes, um, but I actually was given the gift of moral clarity about the cause of abortion, the cause for life by a hero of mine. And I think this is one of the keys to moral clarity. One of the keys to having moral clarity and being able to have perspective on the culture that we're in and the crises that are around us, whether it's a crisis about sexuality and marriage, you know, our culture says all the wrong things about sex and marriage. It says that sex is just about consent and pleasure, right? There's no sexual morality beyond consent, um, meaning sex is not about commitment, responsibility, children. And so we've divorced children from sex, meaning if you have sex, you shouldn't feel responsible if you conceive a child, and that's why you should have an abortion, right? Um, and we shouldn't feel responsible when we have sex for the other person. Um, in fact, 
we don't have to even be committed to the other person or married to them. So there's so much confusion about these different things. Um, but a hero, a hero that I had early on was one of the reasons I was had the gift of moral clarity. And I think it's so key that we as Catholics have heroes that we look to to help us understand the times, to help us understand the, the particular moral confusion of our day. I mean, moral confusion, there's nothing new under the sun. So if you look back in history, you're going to see that people have been morally confused about these issues for centuries. But there are particular ways the moral confusion is justified or is perpetuated in our particular time in history, our particular American culture or Western culture. And so for me, Mother Teresa was a hero of mine. I actually discovered her at a Catholic bookstore um, when I was a teenager. And this was not in DC. I'm from San Jose, California. And I would go with my dad to um, this bookstore because he loved books, I loved books. And we were actually reading like the church fathers and doctors. And that was part of my conversion story ultimately. But I remember being so fascinated at this Catholic bookstore in San Jose that had all these um, aisles of old books. And there were a bunch that I was attracted to about Mother Teresa. She's this little nun from Calcutta, India. And they had these, these pictures of her on the cover. And so I bought these books. I started to read them. I was so taken by her love for Jesus and the poorest of the poor. She worked, you know, she founded the Missionaries of Charity, started the poorest of the poor in Calcutta, India. But then I was gripped by one thing that she wrote that I read. She said, the greatest destroyer of peace in the world is abortion. And then she said, in a nation where a mother can kill her own child, what is left but for you and for I to kill one another? And I read that and it hit me like a ton of bricks because I, 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 there was this moral clarity she had. She didn't say economic equality, inequality was the greatest destroyer of peace. Mother Teresa didn't say that racism was the greatest destroyer of peace. She didn't say that sexism was the greatest destroyer of peace. These are destroyers of peace. Um, these are injustices and they should be combated. These are important causes. But she had a sense of urgency and prioritization, which I think is essential for true moral leadership in our culture today. To have moral clarity, you must have a sense of the urgency and the prioritization of how to act, how to behave, what to do to help achieve justice. And Mother Teresa called abortion the greatest destroyer of peace. Why? It's the leading bloodshed in America today, the leading cause of death. In the world, it's the leading cause of death. Globally, 125,000 abortions happen daily. Globally, 125,000 children killed. No other death toll compares. No other bloodshed compares. In the U.S., it's 2,300 children, nearly 2,400 children daily. This is legal. It's not like it's illegal. Um, thankfully, when we see police brutality and if it's actually captured on camera and it's, um, you know, there's enough of an outcry and there's, there's justice can be justice, there's potential for justice to be served. You know, we saw, we all watched the trial of George, uh, of George Floyd's killer, and we, there was a potential for justice to be served. With abortion, there's not even that potential because it's legalized. It's legalized killing. And the one that's protected is the abortionist to kill as opposed to the child to live. And so with abortion, you have institutionalized, legalized human rights abuse of the worst kind, taking away life from the most vulnerable, the child. And the death toll is catastrophic. And so reading these words, I was given the gift of her urgency and focus on abortion as the as this leading moral crisis of our time. And that inspired me to want to get started. That inspired me to want to get involved. And I want to say two other things about moral clarity before talking about taking action. Number one, how do we discern between a false cause and a just cause, a true cause and a false cause, a just cause or an unjust cause. Because one of the habits of evil and of unjust causes or injustice is to present itself as good, right? This is Satan's oldest trick. We know this as Catholics. Satan hates God, he's jealous, but he tries to take what is good and true and beautiful and use it to mask what is evil and false and ugly, right? And so with any cause that you're seeing in our society, you're gonna see it's probably presenting, putting its best foot forward. And so let's talk on, on the issue of abortion. With, with women's rights today, which is an important cause, you know, equality for women is equal in dignity to men, that matters greatly. 
Um, I think we've achieved most of that equality today in our society, thank God, and the work of our feminist forebears. But today, women's rights are now being upheld as the right to kill another person or your own child. So they're taking something good sounding like reproductive justice or uh, equality for women or even women's health, right? This euphemism. And they're using that cause to actually promote an injustice, which is the killing of children. And so you're gonna see this, even the environmentalism cause, you know, the, the, the challenges of climate change. It is good to care for our environment, right? It is good to um, work to care for the earth and be, um, to be, you know, we're entrusted with the earth to be custodians of the earth. And we should work to make our environment um, and, our, and our kind of footprint more sustainable, et cetera. But the moment that we start to prioritize environmental concerns over human dignity, so the moment we start to say, oh, we need to now um, sterilize or give contraceptives to the poor because they shouldn't have so many people or children and that hurts the environment, or we should have less children. Children are a, are a burden and not a blessing because they're gonna hurt the environment. Instead of seeing children as assets to help manage the world and to help create better and more sustainable models for humanity, um, and we see them as threats, then we have made the environmental cause a false cause. So all of this hinges around a core um, facet, which is seeing the human person in the wrong light, which of course Satan does. Satan hates the human person. And so a false cause is going to get human nature wrong. They're going to disrespect the human person, and they're going to typically dehumanize human beings. Any false cause Today, you'll see it, you'll, you'll be able to uh, tell, is when they dehumanize a group of people. Um, with women's rights today as for pro-abortion, they dehumanize children in the womb. And I talk in the book about um, the banality of evil, which is this uh, term coined by the philosopher, the Jewish philosopher, Hannah Arendt. And she was um, meditating on how did we allow the Holocaust to happen? How did so many Germans um, get up and go to work slaughtering Jews and live what seemed like otherwise normal or, um, you know, unremarkable lives. And she called it the banality of evil because evil can most thrive when it doesn't look like a crazy madman, you know, or a murderer or a, a crazy zealot. But when evil presents itself as a normal, everyday doctor who's walking into, has their cup of coffee and walks into the abortion clinic and slaughters a child. Or evil presents itself as a normal everyday, unfortunately president, who goes to mass on Sundays and spends his time advocating as the president of the United States for abortion on demand paid for by the taxpayer through all nine months. Um, I'm not saying Joe Biden is wholly evil, but I believe what he is standing for as president is evil. Um, objectively so. And so evil doesn't necessarily look evil. It can look normal. And that's why it's more important than ever that we have moral clarity and that we are discerning to know what are the causes of the day that need to be championed and what are the false causes of the day. And our heroes help us, study helps us, actually studying these different causes. And then also our faith is an incredible treasure and gift. Um, one of the many reasons I became Catholic, I mean, I became Catholic because it's the truth, <laughs> um, but I became Catholic because of the moral clarity and leadership that never misses the mark, thanks to the guidance of the Holy Spirit that the church provides. And the moral clarity that the Catholic Church provides, you could say it's biblical. You know, I think um, in the evangelical circles, there's a lot of talk about something being biblical. But the beauty of mor morality is you don't need the Bible to explain morality. Um, morality is uh, based out of what we are as human beings, our human nature, which you can discuss really with anybody um, using just reason and common sense to discuss what is the proper way to treat one another? What is the just way in human interactions to treat one another? So our faith, study, and then heroes are keys to, for us to have moral clarity so that we can be moral leaders in an often very confused culture. So that's the first step. Um, one last thing I'll say too, really quick. There are anti-heroes. Anti-heroes are morally confused or they're morally ambiguous and they mislead others. And there are anti-heroes everywhere in our culture today. Um, they promote vice, 
They often do so in the name of virtue or even they use the language of morality. And we can be anti-heroes, you know, if we're not, um, if we're not seeking obedience to the truth and if we're not seeking to uh, grow in virtue, which again is a day in day out process, it's a messy process, then we can easily, because of our own woundedness, we're all wounded by original sin, we can easily become a, someone who misleads others. So I think that's again why having heroes and that the saints are some of the best heroes, um, continuing to study our faith and form our consciences are essential for us to have the moral clarity to lead in our culture today. And that moral clarity gave me the courage at a young age to start live action. And so I talk in the book about now this next piece I'm gonna to get to, taking action. Once you are given the gift of moral clarity, you now have responsibility. <laughs> you know, it's like Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. Moral clarity and knowledge is power and it's a gift. I mean, a lot of people today don't have it because they weren't raised with the truth or they, you know, they, they were wounded deeply by others and their consciences are broken or they were miseducated. They were miseducated and so their consciences are wounded. And so because of that, they might not have moral clarity. And so all the more responsibility we have for those who have moral clarity to take action on that clarity and to work to serve those that are in need. Um, they're morally hungry, they need the moral truth explained to them lovingly, or they're in, in actual danger. I mean, a child in the womb is in actual danger of death. A woman today who's pregnant, it's an unplanned pregnancy, she's in actual danger of walking into an abortion clinic and subjecting herself and her body to an abortionist. So we have a responsibility to help. So how do we do that? <laughs> um, I don't know about you, but there have definitely been times in my life, I talk about this in, in my book, and fighting for life that I have felt overwhelmed by the, the sheer gravity of the cause and the, uh, the intensity of it and how much of it there is to, to face. Um, with abortion, it can seem just overwhelming. I mean, just the sheer death toll and our culture can look so confused. And I wanna say a few things about that. Yes, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of um, death toll today. There's a lot of, there's a crisis, there's crises happening, but it's where we focus our attention in part because the media is reporting the worst of the worst. Um, social media algorithms are designed to show us the worst of the worst, the worst uh, partisanship, the worst divide, but there are some really good things happening right now. Uh, uh, the abortion rate has been declining over the last 10 years uh, in an unprecedented way. The abortion industry, Planned Parenthood's research arm, Guttmacher Institute, just released a statement last week um, expressing horror over the fact that pro-life legislation has been at an all-time high at the state level in the last two years. So unprecedented pro-life legislation has been passed and proposed at the state level in the last two years. And we have seen at Live Action millions of people who are joining the pro-life movement who are connecting with the movement and voting for life and supporting pregnancy centers and fostering and adopting and sharing the truth with churches and family and friends and getting passionate. So there's something powerful happening in our country. And so what's our role? We all have a role to play in this. This, this cause, the, the greatest causes of our day are not for the person next to us who might seem more equipped, but they're for us too. And I think this is such an important point because I think it can feel like, well, you know, I don't know if you're listening and you're like, well, I'm gonna go be a lawyer and put in my time in big law. And you know, that's, that's my focus right now, or I'm a busy parent, I'm a busy mom or dad, or I'm a busy student or whatever busy thing you're doing. We're all have different busyness or different things. But if we have moral clarity, if we have that truth and others don't, and there are people in danger of death, both morally speaking and physically speaking, we have a responsibility to do something. And doing something can be as simple as just starting. One thing today, and maybe this thing today is you're at this talk listening, thanks for being here. Um, one thing today to serve those in need. One thing today to share the moral clarity that you have. Maybe it's more research you need to do or more study you need to do. Maybe it's picking up the phone and calling a friend who's already involved in the cause and saying, how can I help you? What can I do to join you? Maybe it's volunteering at the local pregnancy center 
or it's donating, or maybe it is learning how to become a advocate for foster youth. If you're a single person, you're not in the position to foster, you can be the advocate who weekly meets with a child or monthly meets with a child during their different transitions to check on them and be a consistent um, positive force in their life. Maybe it's praying outside the abortion clinic today, stopping by for 30 minutes, even 15 minutes, and praying part of a rosary on the sidewalk. Your witness there could be the reason a woman drives past that clinic instead of going into it because she was praying to God for a sign on the way there that she shouldn't have this abortion. By the way, I've heard this story many times. It's happened to me. <laughs> um, you might, maybe it's today, it's just getting on your knees and saying, God, I don't know where to start. I have some ideas. I have these insecurities or hangups. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But help me, God. Use me. Use me to make a difference. The key is what am I going to do one thing today to move forward? What am I going to do one thing today to make make a make the next step in my cause? Um, to take the next step in discovering what my cause is or take the next step in fighting for my cause. It doesn't have to be fancy or crazy. It's certainly not going to be glamorous. It can be something simple, but the key is one thing one day at a time. And that's what I've been doing for the last 15 years. <laughs> and before I knew it, I was going undercover in abortion clinics. I was traveling globally and speaking before members of the United Nations. I was, you know, now here I am talking at the CAC with this book. Um, I don't know where I'm going to end up next. You know, I'm on this adventure with God, but it's one day at a time. And that's how we grow. And that's how God uses our life to transform the lives of others. So just start. Two things to help you in taking action, concrete things. Number one, mentors. Um, we are not meant to do this alone. We cannot do this alone. And we need people to help us grow and to guide us. And so finding somebody who can help guide you, a coach, and maybe this is a one-time meeting and then you find someone else, or maybe this is someone you end up meeting with regularly. This could be your spiritual director. This could be a mentor. Like if you're a woman, another woman who can help you become the woman you want to be, but you tell them, listen, I want to fight for the causes that matter. I want to grow into the person I'm meant to be. Help me. Let's make a plan together. And having that accountability and that guidance from someone who's wiser than us and maybe has more experience can make or break our trajectory. And for me, I've had mentors and guides and spiritual uh, directors over the years that have really transformed my life. Where did I find them? I asked a lot of people. <laughs> I would just go around like I'd find someone like a priest that I admired or, you know, I, I went to confession one time for the first time. You know, I, I just received first first confession and I was back in San Jose. I, I received um, into the church as a sophomore at UCLA. I was back in San Jose visiting my family. I, I needed spiritual help. I was in a conundrum about stuff, working through stuff. I went to confession with a random priest and I could tell he was holy. I was like, this, this guy, he gets it. So I waited for him outside the confessional, <laughs> um, like a stalker. Cause I was like, I'm going to, I want more time with him. I need help. And so I just waited and he pops out and I'm like, hi, you heard my confession. Thank you, father. Um, do you have a few more minutes to talk to me? Cause I just, I want, I need more help. I need more clarity. And so in some ways it was kind of needy. I was like going around, you know, asking whoever I thought could give me help, help. Um, but don't be afraid to ask for help. That's how you get it. And it probably won't be handed to you. Maybe it will. Maybe you'll get lucky and someone will just show up and be like, I want to help you. Um, but typically you have to ask. And one other thing I'll say too, undertaking action is this. Uh, we are not meant to do our work alone. And there will be lonely moments, I guarantee you. And there have been for me. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But we are actually meant to fight for the causes that matter, to fight for life, to live out our calling with the support of others. And I don't just mean a mentor or a guide or a coach. I'm not just talking about heroes, the saints, you know, for their prayers. I'm talking about comrades. And do you have a comrade? Do you have a friend who cares too? Uh, a friend who is also passionate about saving lives who see who has moral clarity as well brainstorm with them that's how live action started live action started in my parents living room when i was 15 years old because i had no other pro-life group to join there was no other pro-life educational group in all of the bay area i mean millions of people live in the bay area silicon valley and i called and i researched and there wasn't a single other group <laughs> doing pro-life education for young people and so i was like shoot, I guess I'm going to have to start it. 
And so I called some friends and we got in my parents' living room and we're like, how do we educate the youth of San Jose, California? It all started with that. And there were times when my friends didn't show up, my comrades wouldn't show up to the meetings and they were too busy, you know, and there were lonely moments. So a comrade isn't, you know, necessarily gonna be a um, all in person all the time. They're gonna have their own things they're figuring out, but they will overall be in the battle with you. And maybe they'll be even more committed than you will be and, and you'll be the one not showing up to their meeting, but find your comrades. Find your friends who don't just want to live life, but they want to save lives. Find your friends who don't just want to get along, but who want to become saints. And they know that to become a saint is to act on the moral clarity we've been given. They know that to become a saint is to take action, to fight for those in need, morally, spiritually, physically. So find those comrades, keep looking for them. I mean, I bet there's a bunch at the CIC. So show up to the next in-person event if you can and start making friends um, and then start working together. The last thing I want to share before we open for questions are some thoughts on personal wholeness. So we've talked about the power and importance of moral clarity and as Catholics, what a gift that is and how we can use that. Um, I've talked about getting started, that one thing today, you know, not giving up. And that's part of overcoming. It's it's discovering each day and getting on a path where you're always positive motion. Even if we make mistakes, keep going, keep going. Personal wholeness, there's three things I want to say here. And I talk a lot in Fighting for Life about this because I think if anybody wants to change the world, they have to first acknowledge that they need to be changed. And change, personal change is a daily practice. We need to be converted. We need to be transformed. And the degree to which we will change the world is the degree to which we are willing to be changed ourselves. And there's a few ways of change that I want to emphasize. First of all, the change that comes when we allow ourselves to be heartbroken, heartbroken. Um, let yourself weep and be angry over the injustice in the world. Let yourself feel it. Contemplate the plight of others. Contemplate the injustice that others might face. This is a powerful thing, by the way, to get outside of ourselves in our own little bubble. Maybe you have to physically go to those in need and try to understand them. I mean, that's for me when I was um, first starting pro life work, I went to a sidewalk of an abortion clinic and prayed, and I watched women distraught going in. I watched young girls going in. I stood behind the brick wall. Um, where the abortionist was dismembering children up to six months old, living children, and it changed me. Um, there's lots of ways we can connect ourselves to the suffering of others, uh, but it, we need to be changed. We need to be heartbroken. Heartbreak hurts, but I think it's a necessary hurt for social action. And maybe that heartbreak, a lot of it's in our own hearts already because of things that have been done wrong to us or because of mistakes we've made. And so I talk about a lot in Fighting for Life, the importance of grief, because we all have things to grieve and maybe we've already grieved them. But, you know, in our childhoods, I had, a, I had an amazing childhood, but I share in the book some of the struggles that our family had and I had. And I had to grieve some of those, those wounds, some of those dysfunctions. And I had to let myself understand what was wrong and what was right so that I could work to build what was right in my future. And so I think in order for us to heal in our own hearts, we have to allow ourselves to grieve. Um, that includes being repentant for the crimes we've committed and the wrongs we've done, um, allowing ourselves to be heartbroken over them, and then receive the forgiveness and the healing that we need, as much as it is to be heartbroken over the wrongs done to others. And Jesus is the perfect example of this. I mean, he's often emoting in the gospels. He weeps over the death of his um, beloved friend, Lazarus. He weeps over Jerusalem as he contemplates its future destruction uh, before his death and crucifixion. I mean, remember he's weeping, he's in agony because he knows that the temple will be torn down. Um, so many of the Jewish people will be um, driven out and killed, children, women, and men. And he knows that he will be dying for the saving of mankind, but some will still reject him. And so he's weeping. And then in the, in the, in the, in the garden, he is in such agony emotionally and spiritually and morally. 
that he cries tear he sweats blood um our lord lived heartbreak so that he could be a model to show us how he wants us to follow him and that heartbreak doesn't stop with heartbreak it ultimately ends in healing but in order to heal you have to allow yourself to be broken first um, broken over what has already been broken broken over what is already wrong and two other things i'll say um, about personal wholeness and its power as we work to fight for causes is um you know i talk a lot about the the fight the pro-life fight and causes what's the ultimate call you know the ultimate call is to glorify god and to be with god forever in heaven but throughout my 20s i was in dc i was in la i was dating i was trying to figure out god am i called to marriage because i understood vocation i understood that i'm not just called to like be an activist you know or to try to be a good person but i'm called to ultimately live in relationship to others and for many of us that will mean marriage and family for some of us that'll mean religious life for some of us that might mean consecrated singleness or just ongoing singleness where we're not sure what god has but we're waiting to see and so all of us though should be preparing and all of us should be ultimately um, ready to receive vocation if god gives it to us and for me that meant um, as much as i was fighting for my cause putting my family first you know um, being present in the lives of my brothers and sisters when i was a single woman um, making time for my parents and my grandparents i share in the book um, a story where when i was a teenager and I was like really activistic and I was raising money for this famine victims in Niger and doing all this stuff. And I was also going through my own struggles and whatever. And I came home one night, I think I was like 16 or 17 years old. And my dad, it was like 10 PM. I was like out, you know, collaborating with a friend on this fundraiser for famine victims. And I came home and my, I think curfew was like right at 1030 for my parents. And I came home right then. And my dad is sitting in the living room in his armchair and he's like lures i'm like rushing upstairs to my bedroom and he's like lures i'm like yes he's like can i talk to you for a minute and i'm like sure and he says listen lures <laughs> my family calls me lures he says he says listen he said you know what you know we love you it's great what you're doing he said but you know we're your family we're not your hotel we're your family we're not your hotel and those words really stuck with me he was saying you know you're doing great work it's great, go for it. But we're still your family. You know, you can still have dinner with us and hang out with us. Like we're not just a hotel where you check in and check out and then go back to your activism and your work. And those words have really stuck with me. And so my commitment in my twenties was I wanna build an organization and build my cause in a way that when I am a wife and mother, if that's what God calls me to, I put my children and my husband first. And so, um, you know, that's different for all of us. Again, we're all in different stages of life and figuring out different things, but the ultimate cause is vocation. And that's, these other causes matter tremendously, but how we love our families, how we treat our families, how we love our kids, our spouses, how we prepare to be the best husband or wife we can be, um, how we prepare for vocation. That's ultimately the measure of how we fight for the causes that matter most, because that is the ultimate cause. And there's so much beauty and relief in that, because let me tell you, um, being a mom and, and anybody listening who's a woman, you're called to be a mom. You might not be called to be a physical mother, a biological mother, but you're called to be a spiritual mother. Every woman, the height of her maturity is her ability to nurture and give life to others, bring others up. Um, and that might look like an emotional bringing up, you know, you, you mentor other people, maybe you're in, if you are religious, you're spiritually mothering others, or even if you're not a religious, you're spiritually mothering others. And same for men. I think the ultimate maturity as a man is he's no longer a child. He's now stepping into adulthood, which is ultimate maturity is fatherhood. And that might not be biological. If you're not called to that, you're not married. Maybe that will be spiritual fatherhood, mentoring others. But that is the ultimate, um, an ultimate cause for all of us is universal as human beings, as men and women. And let me tell you, it's beautiful. You know, as much as it's, um, you know, there's, there's reward that comes with like being an activist and, you know, fighting for life and these different things, there's nothing as beautiful and rewarding as getting to mother or father someone, as getting to um, pour into another soul, as getting to love another person. That's where we find the greatest, joy and meaning as human beings. So embrace family life, embrace marriage, embrace kids, embrace spiritual 
motherhood and fatherhood, embrace vocation. Uh, the last thing I'm gonna say, and then we'll close for questions, is celebration. So I'm talking here about personal wholeness as a key to fighting for life and fighting for our causes. And I think the, the real sort of wrapping of personal wholeness or the real, um, I would say, kind of encapsulation of personal wholeness is living out our ability and the call as human beings to celebrate and worship. So what do we do every Sunday? Every Sunday, we go to mass for those who are Catholic. If you're not Catholic, maybe you're evangelical, you go to church, um, but Sunday is supposed to be the day of rest. Rest to worship God and to celebrate our families and be with our loved ones. Um, why? God did this himself, right? God took the day off, the seventh day after he created the universe and he marveled at how good the universe was and he rested, okay? We are made as human beings. Um, not just for work, because work we're made for too. Work is good, work, get started, you know, keep going, fight, whatever. But we're made for celebration. And celebration, the highest form of celebration is worshiping God. It's communion with God and marveling at the perfection that is God and the, the love and goodness that is God. And celebration is also taking a step back from the battle, from the toil, and looking at the good looking at the gift of our relationships, looking at the gift of maybe the lives that have been saved because of our advocacy, um, looking at the um, beautiful you know, children we've been given or nieces or nephews or godchildren we've been given and celebrating them. And that's, I think, the ultimate, um, the height of what it means to be human is the celebration of the other, uh, loving the other and seeing the good of the other and rejoicing in that good. That's what God does for us. That's why he created us to rejoice in how good it is that we exist. And that's the call of us towards God and towards each other to rejoice in the goodness that life is and our lives are. So thank you so much um, for taking going on this journey with me of this kind of cliff notes of fighting for life. We talked about moral clarity and the power of moral clarity, importance of moral clarity, um, taking action, and personal wholeness in the fight for life. My deep hope is that anybody who picks up this book um, or gives it, shares it with another, will feel inspired and encouraged and equipped in your own calling and your own causes. And together, I believe if we are willing to fight for life, we can transform our culture and we can make America and the countries that we are in nations that respect life and have cultures of life. So thank you all so much. And I think we're open. We're ready for questions now. Thank you, Lila. So um, we did have some questions sent into us via email. And if you have a question and you're watching this live right now, um, the YouTube chat box is open. Please um, share your questions there. Um, you can also email, um, uh, email me as well at rosemary.eldridge at cicdc.org. Okay, so um, we had a viewer um, ask the question. So you've been involved in the pro-life movement, as you said, since you were 15 years old. So for over a decade. What made you decide that now was your moment to write your first book? Thank you. Um, great question. So I've been thinking about writing a book for a decade, but I really felt like, okay, got to do it now. Um, because I see this tipping point, number of tipping points that we are at culturally and politically in the fight for life. And I thought more than ever, we need people equipped and inspired to join the fight. And so I wanted to take the experience that I had, and I also didn't have enough experience too. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's difficult to write a book that uses your some of your life as examples when you're like 25. I mean, People have done that, I guess, but you know, I was like, I should be at least past 30 <laughs> to do this um, because I wanna make sure there's something really helpful in here. And so I saw just this moment culturally and politically where unprecedented things are happening and we need people more than ever in the fight to tip the scales. And I also felt like, okay, I, I know what I want to say here. You know, I know what the moral version of rules for radicals looks like now, <laughs> and I wanna write it and share it with the world. I really enjoyed what you had to say about 
the importance of having more clarity on not just, you know, abortion issues, but any issues. And, and even more importantly, the importance of not being apathetic to discerning uh, uh, the moral clarity. And on social media, we see, uh, especially around like the self-care um, movement, you know, a lot of like speaking my truth, I'm sharing my truth. And on the surface, this seems like a really innocent phrase. But if you take a step back and you really look at what a line like that is saying, um, especially to, to young people, you're seeing a message that is actually the denial, uh, that denies the existence of truth. So how has this um, affected live action's ability um, to, uh, not just live action's ability, but the pro-life movement's in general ability to be effective and, and changing hearts and minds if you're having that issue of like finding like not just the common ground, but actual agreeing on what the truth is. Mm -hmm. So at its best, um, the phrase, my truth can be, you know, what am I really feeling and experiencing right now? Because there is truth to that. I mean, your feelings, you know, are objective in the sense that you can speak about them and say, this is how I feel, even if what you feel maybe isn't justified or doesn't match reality. You know, you have a disorder in your feelings, but I think it is important to acknowledge how we're feeling and our own experiences. So I think in that sense, the my truth has some value, <laughs> but when my truth becomes my truth, I am the arbiter of all truth. You know, I get to decide what is right and wrong for me and I'm just gonna do it. Um, that's extremely damaging and it's a, it's a lie. You know, we, we, we're not God, we don't invent morality. Um, you know, when society thinks it can invent morality is when injustices get committed. You know, when, when you start to say, oh, I, this group of people isn't valuable, we can kill them, or these people don't deserve rights, we can take them away. I mean, that's called my truth, right? That's what we think, and we're the ones in power. So it's certainly something live action um, deals with in our work to educate others. But I will say, if you can make the case, you know, for human life, um, we, we say very simply, you know, science is clear when human life begins at the moment of fertilization. It's always wrong to intentionally take an innocent human life. Do you agree? You know, most people are like, yeah, I agree. It's always wrong to intentionally take an innocent human life. And then you say, well, you know, if that embryo is a human life and abortion is ending their life, then it's always wrong to have an abortion. It's all, abortion is always wrong. So you can still reach people who are kind of living in moral ambiguity and often they they can be very open to it but you just have to um you have to sort of be sensitive to their ambiguity <laughs> and their confusion that they might be in and talk to them in a way that's respectful and helps connect the dots for them does your book um touch at all on on the apologetics of you know the pro-life cause at all so it does. Um, that's certainly not the focus of the book because it's more this, you know, guidebook for fighting for causes that matter most. But it's a component because you need to be prepared, especially in the pro-life fight with apologetics. Um, so there's definitely parts of the book that get into apologetics. But I would highly recommend. I mean, the live action store actually sells. I bet CIC sells them too. So I should be promoting you guys too. But um, we sell some really phenomenal books that are just on apologetics. You know, Trent Horn wrote one, Stephanie Gray wrote another. Um, so if you, you know, my book will be helpful for that, but if you want just straight up apologetics, I recommend those too. Those are really good recommendations. We had Stephanie Gray come into the CIC a couple, a couple years ago to give the, that talk that she gave at Google that was uh, so successful for the pro-life movement. Um, in your book, I do know you talk about the importance of having inner courage. I think on a lot of topics, this is really important, but especially on abortion, and especially considering when you look at the demographics of the pro-life movement, we are people from all different backgrounds, all different political backgrounds, values, um, and, and faiths, and, and people who grew up pro-life and people who you know came into the pro-life movement later in life. So especially for those who you know, are converts <laughs> to the pro-life movement, what would your advice be to them um, specifically about an, like how to maintain an inner courage? 
because they might start speaking out, you know, taking that one step, you know, and saying on their social media, you know, that abortion is wrong per XYZ. And all of the friends that they've grew up with over the last years who, you know, might be pro-choice um, start to turn their backs on them. You know, that is a, a reality that a lot of people in the pro-life movement face, especially those um, who come in as converts to the movement. Um, I don't know if converts is the right word to use, but I, I know you know what I'm trying to say. So what's your advice for just the average person to, to stay courageous and, and bold on this topic? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's a good question because um, <laughs> it's never easy or it's rarely easy to speak up when other people disagree. I mean, you might have that rare rare temperament. There are these people that like loves debating and you just like to like go in and have fights with people. <laughs> um, I'm actually not like that, believe it or not. And I know most people aren't. They're kind of non-confrontational by nature. And by the way, that's that's not a bad thing inherently because as society, we, we're supposed to get along to, with each other, right? We're supposed to, in a sense, peer pressure can be good, you know, because you're the point of peer pressure is for society to act by certain norms that are the right norms, okay? But when the norm is wrong, and most people are like, abortion's great, women's rights, right? Then it hurts to stand up against the norm. And anytime a change needs to be made, there's a price to pay. So yes, it's hard. I mean, I'm not going to try to downplay how difficult it can be, especially for some of us to speak up when there's going to be a cost, you know, some people will be angry with us, we'll lose friends, I've lost friends. Um, you know, I've had death threats and rape threats and like different stuff over the years, it doesn't, it's not easy. But a couple of things that will help you. Number one, let your um, conviction, your moral clarity, and your heartache drive you. If you're really concerned about the children that are dying, and you want to help them, if you're really concerned about the people that are believing the lie and hurting themselves, then your desire to help other people can override your own fears and sense of inadequacies. So let yourself really feel and be passionate and driven. And in order to get to that place, maybe you're kind of feeling apathetic, start to study, start to read, start to understand the problem and the injustice to get yourself passionate, because we should be passionate. Another thing that will help us is, again, back to the comrade thing. Um, do you have one friend who you can commiserate with? You know, maybe there's a friend be like, you can be vulnerable, like, hey, like, I want to come out as pro-life, you know, or want to come out as for traditional marriage, you know, for, for marriage or whatever it is. And I'm going to try to do it in a smart way. But, you know, I, I would love some like backup or, you know, I'd love to just commiserate with you because I'm a little concerned I'm going to lose friends. Like having one person to talk to or a mentor or a guide or, you know, even your mom, <laughs> um, if you can't find anyone else and your mom, you know, hopefully is supportive and maybe she's not. So it's somebody else. But um, having one person who's like got your back a little bit, even in private, like that makes a difference. So that's another tool. And then the last thing would be um, keep trying. You know, if you miss it one time, if you screw up one time, if you are too afraid one time, do it the next time. Uh, don't stop just because you didn't do it in the past. Maybe you've been really quiet in your family about abortion or sex or other things, and you've never brought it up with a friend or a family member because you're afraid. Um, just because you didn't do it in the past doesn't mean you can't do it in the future. You know, pray about it, be loving. But um, sometimes our conversation, our willingness to engage can make all the difference in the world. I know one more thing. Your willingness to speak makes it easier for the next person. Like in your workplace, if you're if you're and, and God forbid you pretend like you're, you know, pro-abortion or you pretend like you approve of some of these immoral things, like never pretend that you approve, then you're actually committing a sin that's going to hurt yourself. Um, and if you have pretended in the past, you know, say sorry for that and move on and never do it again. So always be honest. Um, but if you're willing in your place of work when the when it comes up, when it's appropriate moment to speak what you believe you're giving space for the next person who agrees with you deep down, but is also afraid to also join your voice. If you're not willing to speak, why would someone else have the courage to speak? So be that person who's willing to speak. I love that. It kind of goes back to what you were saying with your comment of, you know, you don't just want to get along. You know, you want to be around people who want to become saints, who are taking action, you know, based on the more clarity um, that they've been given that we would say by, by God. 
Um, so uh, our next question is, hold on, let me pull up my thing. Um, okay, so right now we're you mentioned in your talk a lot of the um, wins that the pro-life movement is seeing on the legislative level, especially at the state level. Um, we just saw today or yesterday the, uh, a heartbeat ban go into effect in Texas. Um, so do you see, you know, these policies as overall being like effective, um, an effective strategy at not just decreasing abortions, but hopefully, you know, getting a case of the Supreme Court that would ultimately overturn Roe v. Wade. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I think the heartbeat thing in Texas is in process. I don't think it's passed yet, but I think it's um, passed part of the legislature. Okay. But it, heartbeat bills are passing in other in other countries and other states. Um, so this is my take on all of that. So first of all, I think the Supreme Court, the makeup of the court, there's hope that they will decide a pro-life decision that can undo some of the damage or all the damage of Roe. Um, all we need is a new precedent at the court level that yes, a preborn child is a person. Uh, they're protected under the 14th Amendment, you know, equal protection for all. Um, no state has the right to deprive anyone of their of their life. And so that would include the persons that are the preborn. And now the state, the 50 states have an interest in protecting the preborn and they have a responsibility to do that. So there's a tremendous things that can happen at the Supreme Court level. And the left or the you know pro-abortion side, they know that. And so that's one of the reasons they're trying to um, pack the Supreme Court because they uh, are concerned that we will have a pro-life ruling. So that being said, what's happening at the state level is incredibly important. Any pro-life effort is a good one, I would say, um, as long as it's nonviolent, but particularly the pro-life efforts to ban abortions completely, I think are the best um, laws at the state level. If you have a pro-life legislature, a pro-life governor, abolish abortion in your state. I mean, I'm glad that Texas is working towards these legal protections, but, and the heartbeat bill is, is, is very close to all abortions banned. I mean, it practically does ban all abortions in the sense that um, all abortions are typically done after the heartbeat is detected. That's only three and a half weeks after fertilization. But I would just say, if you have a pro-life um, legislature and governor, just ban all abortions in your state. Will a court, um, because of Roe v. Wade and its precedent, try to block you? Yes, and they probably will succeed. You know, there's different legislation that does um, succeed and others that don't. You know, a complete up, up abolition of abortion is going to get um, contested. But that might be the case that makes it to the Supreme Court. And what's most important here, I think, you know, because there's a lot of cases the Supreme Court could decide or not decide to hear. What I think is most important is that the Supreme Court sees the energy for abortion abolition at the state level because they they pay attention they see which way the country is trending they see where people are at and i think it's important that we make our voices heard politically in that when we can if we're in a more pro-life state and that we do what's right legally whether the courts are going to let us or not because you're sending a message to the courts of where the will of the people is and what is right and wrong as you see it so i in that sense i think the pro-life legislative efforts are crucial even if for now, many of them are blocked by um, not the Supreme Court, but district courts, I do think there will be a Supreme Court ruling on an abortion case in the next few years. And I think it might be tremendously good for the movement. We have uh, someone watching at home who is asking for just a little bit more clarification on moral clarity and how one can obtain it. And then before uh, you answer that question, we also have a viewer who says that they hear the Holy Spirit inside of you. And I just wanted to second that. That's very sweet. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> hope it's the Holy Spirit and not something else. Um, <laughs> so as far as moral clarity, I think the question is like, where do we get that from? And um, I mean, a very simple answer is the Ten Commandments which you can make a case for each one of the 10 commandments based on human nature and just the consequences of human action. But I think the 10 commandments were divinely given um, and they match you know, the whole, they kind of cover the gamut of human behavior and what is rightly ordered relationships with each other and with God and with ourselves. And there's a reason that thousands of years of Judaism and now Christianity has uh, held to these 10 commandments. And there's a reason why most world religions um, have a version of the 10 commandments. 
You know, these are universally understood to be moral truths. Um, treat others as you would treat yourself. I mean, that's not one of the Ten Commandments, but that's effectively the message of much of the Ten Commandments. Um, do not kill. Do not murder. Um, you know, do not steal your neighbor's wife. Do not covet. Don't take what's not yours. Um, don't worship false idols. These are not, you know, some like random ideas, <laughs> um, but they're pretty universally held by cultures because they're, I think, written on the human heart. So I hope that's helpful. Um, a lot on morality has been written by the popes and a lot of encyclicals over the decades and centuries. The church has a lot on it. I'm trying to think of a good resource just on moral clarity um, to explain that. I'll have to think about that. And uh, as I come, I'll share it on share it on social media as far as like a book that I would recommend. I will actually admit I'm working on my second book and it's about moral clarity. So actually, I guess this is a pitch for book number two. And it's about how we know morality and why morality makes you happy. So, you know, <laughs> I guess you'll, that that's not coming up for probably at least another year and a half to two years. But I am working on something up kind of about that. I love that. Um, okay, so we don't have any more time for more questions, but Lila, thank you so much for speaking uh, to our audience here um, in DC and around the country. It's been so great to get to talk to you and hear from you and and, and th this hopeful message that's in your book. And you know, I know you t you talked about it's okay to grieve and that you know abortion is overwhelming. Like the the evil that is abortion can be very overwhelming and that it's important to grieve. But I think that your message is an overall very hopeful one that once we do grieve, um, and um, not what I wanna say, as we grieve and take this heartbreak, heartbreak and, and use it to make a positive change in the culture. So I really love that. And I wanna encourage everyone who's watching, if you haven't already pre-ordered, um, pick up your book, you can get it at CIC if you're local and it's for sale on, on, on at all the online re retailers. Um, thank you again, Lila, and everyone watching. Please follow us on social media. We're on all the platforms, and you can sign up for our email listserv in the video description below. Thank you so much, and, uh, and God bless.